real, real conversations, conversations and some hard truths. Hard truths. Gangs, yes. drugs, and guns. Giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Hi everyone, I'm your host, Nathan Romus. My guest today is Terry Bryant, the Chief Firearms Officer for the province of Alberta. A little bit about Terry. Uh, Terry was raised in rural and small town Ontario and moved to Vancouver for her graduate studies. After completing her MBA at the University of British Columbia, she worked in banking in Toronto and then returned to UBC for her doctorate in international business. In 1990, she moved to Alberta and taught business full-time at the University of Calgary for 25 years, specializing in international business and particularly business with Japan. After retiring in 2015, she escorted groups of students to Japan on travel study programs and did volunteer work. Uh, she also wrote professionally on matters of federal government policy, service on the Alberta Firearms Com uh, sorry the Alberta Firearms Advisory Committee led her to apply for the job of Alberta Chief Firearms Officer. She was appointed to that position effective September 1st of 2021 and now splits her time between Calgary and Edmonton. She also travels extensively within the province to listen to Albertans on firearms issues. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Uh, I could say that I do know you travel a lot because I've talked to you a few times <laughs> and you're back and forth between the two major cities. Uh, you were also recently at the grand opening for the new Profit River store yes. uh, in Lloydminster. I was. And how did that go? Oh, it was great. Um, you know, I do a lot of uh, outreach at gun shows, and um, this was a bit of a logical extension of that. So I sort of set up my tables the same way I do at a gun show, and people came up to talk to me the same way they do at a gun show. And uh, so we had a lot of good conversations about uh, firearms issues and people's concerns uh, with firearms regulations. And uh, I always have some cool stuff to look at, so also lots of uh, interesting conversations about the cool stuff I had to look at. Great. Well, um, yeah, thank you for being here today, and I, you know, taking time out of your schedule, uh, I appreciate it a lot. Um, this meeting, I have to say, has been in the making for some time. Uh, we originally met um, at a call I was on at the Edmonton uh, office, and in there, you're gracious enough to give me some time, and we kind of connected from there. Uh, I set up a meeting for um, for you with our gang team, and unfortunately, I got sick, so I wasn't able to make <laughs> that. Um, but you still made it out. I heard you had a great conversation with our boss, and from there, this podcast idea kind of came up. So you're one of the first people I thought, hey, let's get them on, on the show. Well, I'm honored to have the opportunity to... Uh connect with you and your listeners because uh, you know law enforcement is one of the uh, key constituency partners that we work a lot with and obviously very important in maintaining public safety which is the number one goal of our office. Yeah so um, maybe we'll kind of start at the beginning. I gave a bit of an intro on you but I'm curious how do you go from rural small town Ontario from out to the coast back to Toronto you're doing things back and forth. Uh, you worked in banking. Now you're in firearms. <laughs> so what's kind of the story there? Okay, well, um, when I was a kid, my father had a job that required us to move very frequently. So I went to nine schools in my first nine years of school. And uh, usually we ended up living uh, wherever it was cheap, which was out in the country somewhere where my father would live in a, would be working in a nearby uh, town or city. And so... Uh, we lived all over sort of southern and, and uh, central Ontario. That had two uh, impacts, I guess. One was that my father, and before him my grandfathers, had been heavily involved in recreational use of firearms. And so practically the only thing I ever did with my dad when he was home was go to gun shows or go to the range. So that uh, perhaps gives a little bit of insight into how... Um, uh, I ended up with a bit of a firearms theme to my life. The other thing was that because we were moving all the time, I didn't usually have many friends, 
Um, by the time I made any friends, they would moved again. So I became sort of very bookish and uh, spent a lot of time reading the Book of Knowledge or encyclopedias or a series called Freddy the Pig when I was very young, anything I could get my hands on, and that sort of led into my more academic uh, pursuits. Okay. Uh, and then once you were at UBC, you completed your MBA, and that was in finance or... Uh, well, an MBA is a general business degree, so I had a bit of emphasis on international business and finance, but uh, an MBA is intended to be general business education uh, at a graduate level. So after I did that, then I went back to, well, actually before I even started a permanent job, part of my uh, bookishness was that I had read a lot of books about other places you know, other places around the world. So I got very interested in languages. So I studied French, German, Latin. Um, and then I wanted to, um, when I uh, went to UBC, I wanted to do a non-European language, and I started studying Japanese. And then when I went back, uh, after finishing at UBC the first time, I went back and joined Bank of Nova Scotia in international trade finance, worked there for four years and continued my study of Japanese. Then when I went to do my doctorate, um, it turned out the best data on my topic were available in Japan and Korea. So I went there to do that work, which led to more, which led to teaching about Japan in the business program at uh, the University of Calgary. So are you still fluent in any of the languages or can you read and write them or? Uh, well, I mean, fluency is always a relative concept, but I, mm -hmm. I mostly, Right now, I work on my French so that I could, like, I, I need to be, in my opinion, uh, I want to be perfectly bilingual, mm -hmm. uh, which I'm not perfectly, but very close, I would say, uh, in French, so that I can collaborate with my, uh, my um, colleagues across the country. And so I have, um, for example, we had a presentation with the uh, Quebec Firearms Office uh, where they did a presentation on outlaw motorcycle gangs. They've taken a very aggressive stance on that. Mm -hmm. And so they provided a bunch of reference he um, hearings. Reference hearings are when somebody disagrees with uh, the decision of the, of the chief firearms office on the um, revocation or uh, refusal of a firearms license. And so uh, I read through several hundred pages of that material in French and then did a little bit of introduction and conclusion, thank yous and so on in French. At the, My German's pretty rusty. Uh, I did have an con extended conversation in Russian with a former Russian soldier that I ran into at uh, one of the gun shows. Uh, he was um, incidentally quite anti uh, Putin, so <laughs> a very interesting guy to talk to. And then, um, you know, my Japanese uh, gets better when I go to Japan for a while and um, and uh, fades a bit when I'm away, but I do actually keep my hand in there because besides collecting firearms, I also collect militaria, particularly Japanese militaria. And so I get people sending me things all the time to translate. Like, I, you know, I have this mm. artifact... It has writing on it. What does it say? So uh, I'm a little bit of um, uh, a, a reference person for a lot of people who need to understand bits and pieces of um, pre-war written Japanese. So are you a history buff on that stuff too? Or? Oh, yeah. So quite, quite, uh, quite a lot. So in fact, this past week, I, was, um, I loaned some of my collection to the military museums in Calgary for an upcoming exhibit. They needed some material on the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-05. Yeah. And uh, it's not that common to find, but I have quite a lot. So. <laughs> wow. So I put some stuff on loan with them. So in, I guess, moving to what you're in between from what you were doing as banking and your current position, yeah. what's the transition there? So how do you go from banking into chief firearms officer? Uh, well, of course, the big step in between was that I spent 25 years at the University of Calgary. And so I was teaching business. And one of the things that a lot of people don't understand about universities is that for the most part, um, the management of universities is done by the professors themselves. Mm -hmm. So someone is a professor, and then they need to have someone to be the chair of the uh, area or to be an associate dean and um, they look around and 
somebody gets the nod and does that for a couple of years and then goes back and does their uh, professorial thing again. And so I had management experience at the bank. I had management experience from several stints as either the head of uh, an area or as an associate dean uh, at the university. So I had management expertise because, or experience at least, expertise is perhaps uh, <laughs> pretentious, but I had some experience at it. Um, and so uh, I had, uh, you know, the job of chief firearms officer is in essence a management job. Okay, so, um, I had management experience, I had exposure to firearms, and because I had been part of the community for quite a long time, I was very well known uh, in the circles of uh, people who were involved in all different aspects of the firearms uh, community, whether that's uh, gun shows, um, uh, hunting, target shooting, um, whatever. And um, then also, I guess, I have... Uh, had a fair bit of experience at public speaking, so I was able to be a reasonable spokesperson for the office. And after a competition that seemed to drag on for quite a long time and involve <laughs> endless questionnaires and security clearances and so on and so mm -hmm. forth, on September 1st, I officially started the job, although I'd been working for a few days before that. Oh, okay. So busy. Uh, well, busy is a very um, understated term for mm -hmm. my life since I became chief firearms officer. Yes. <laughs> Especially working between two cities. Mm -hmm. Imagine that. Like, So, you know, are you spending weeks at a time in one, or they keep you going all day, every day, uh, back and forth? Well, um, it's not back and forth the same day, thank goodness. It's, <laughs> I wouldn't get anything done. <laughs> I'd yeah. be spending all day on the road. Um, well, what happened was originally, um, you know, I guess to start at the beginning, on September 1st when we opened, um, we were basically starting up from scratch. Mm -hmm. And that's something I've done, you know, I have run like campaign offices and things like that. So I'm used to starting something up from nothing, getting it up to a high pitch and then winding it down and closing it up and moving away. Okay, so hopefully I won't be closing it down and moving it away, but the <laughs> startup and getting it up to speed is something that I also have experience with. So. Uh, the first few months, we were pretty much focused on getting that done um, because when we took over the office, when it, you know, there, there was an office before, it was just federally run, and then we took over. Well, that was starting from scratch. There was nothing. We had furniture, but we had no computers, no software, no database access, no files, nothing. It, it went from federally run to provincially so they essentially the federal government says okay it's yours now yeah. we take all of our equipment out yeah well they they shut everything down stripped everything bare and then we walked in and started up from scratch it's quite uh, the project it was quite the project yes um so um anyway that that uh, took a lot of time and during that period it wasn't clear where i was going to be needed and so initially they told me you know, I said, well, like, I'm willing to go up to Edmonton, get an apartment there. Uh, I probably can't move because I just got too much stuff. I got a husband and two cats and, you know, <laughs> uh, lots of stuff. Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, uh, they said, well, you know, just go up there as needed. Well, it turned out that as needed became more and more. And eventually, uh, at the end of February, I rented an apartment uh, very close to my office in Edmonton. And so what I typically do is most of my time actually on weekdays is spent in Edmonton. Um, on weekends, I'm usually traveling either at a gun show or some other kind of special event. Uh, and then in between here and there, um, I'm at home. So recently, for example, I spent 18 straight days on the road. Uh, I left home, went to the Red Deer Gun Show, went from the Red Deer Gun Show up to Edmonton, spent the week in Edmonton, went up to Lloyd, as you said, um, on that weekend, then spent the week in Edmonton, then went to High Prairie for the gun show, drove back to Edmonton, spent over, you know, half a day and then overnight in Edmonton. That's quite a way. The next, yes, it was. And then uh, the next morning, um, came in briefly to the office and headed back home. And... Uh, I do have to spend some time at home because uh, I have a 90-year-old father with Alzheimer's and, and I'm the only 
family member within thousands of kilometers, so mm-hmm. uh, I have to look after him. Um, you know, I was uh, took him to the dentist last week. Next week, I've got to do a follow up, take him to the dentist, and, and things like that. So, so it's a fairly full life. So, yeah, professional, personal, very busy. Yes. What are uh, so you're talking about some of the gun shows that you go to? Uh, how many are you going to? Like, what's it? I don't, I don't personally know how many there are. Um, just kind of what you might see online. You might kind of hear about the odd one, but how many do you end up at in a given month or year? Well, of course, I haven't been in the job for a year yet, but um, basically I'm trying to attend every one that I possibly can in Alberta. Uh, And uh, that is a bit of a shifting target because most of them had to close down during COVID. Mm -hmm. During COVID, there was, I think, maybe two or three. That, yes. You know, there'd be occasionally be a brief period where public health uh, regulations allowed it and bang, a gun show would pop in there and and then things would shut down again. So, um, so uh, right now, shows are opening up where more and more of them are being announced all the time. And I've been to tiny little shows that are, you know, 30 tables. I've been to shows that are over 400 tables. So... If there's a gun show in Alberta, I intend to be at it unless I'm at another gun show in Alberta Uh, or or at some other event. So, for example, I'll miss at least one because uh, there's an upcoming meeting of all the chief firearms officers from across Canada in Winnipeg. Are these gun shows, are they well attended? They have been considered well attended. They have been extraordinarily well attended because for two years there weren't any. Yes. Uh, uh, <laughs> and so uh, people have been desperate to, uh, to get out to them. Because what a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, there was a police officer from uh, Calgary Police Service who, who uh, after attending one, said, you know, this isn't a gun show. It's a social event where people have guns. Yes. Uh, and uh, this is where it's a big social event for the community. It's often... The only time people get to see many of their friends that they've known for years. There's a certain group of people that tend to go around to all the gun shows uh, as exhibitors and another group of people who travel any place they can go to to uh, attend a gun show and and hopefully find that great bargain or that missing item they need for their collection or for their, um, you know, the, the accessory they need for their hunting rifle or whatever. Um, so... It's a, it's a big social gathering, and that's where my, you know, most of my friends were. And so I really missed people, and a lot of them, unfortunately, you know, it, it's a bit of an elderly de- demographic sometimes. So even without any uh, other public health issues, if, it, there's a, if you miss two years' worth of shows, a few of those people will have passed away, you know, just because they were very elderly. And so, um, you know, that's... Uh, when you go back and you suddenly realize, oh, I'm not going to see that person anymore. It's, um, you know, it's a sobering thing, but you, then you get to see all the other people that are still there, and, and that makes you happy. Yeah, I imagine there's a lot of the younger generation coming up, so you get some new people interested, and, um, you know, those collector pieces, uh, like you say, with the, uh, you know, lending part of your collection to the museum, I think that's pretty cool. Um, I think a lot of people don't realize that is a part of the gun ownership community. Yeah, well, that that's uh, another aspect of my life, which I didn't mention because there's just so many aspects that <laughs> it's hard to keep them all in. Hard for me to even keep track sometimes. I'm also the president of the Military Collectors Club Association of Canada, which okay. is, um, I mean, there are people who collect firearms in that group, but it's... Uh, more oriented towards people who collect militaria, which is everything from, you know, medals to books, photographs, um, historical items, okay, uh, including uniforms and things like that. Um, so uh, that uh, aspect of history is a, a very important thing to me. And it's one of the unfortunate aspects of how we've regulated firearms in Canada is that a lot of people, a younger generation, have been cut off from their history. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I was a kid, you could go to a gun show and you could see all kinds of things. And once you were old enough, you could buy them. And then later, you know, once you had an FAC, a firearms acquisition certificate, and then later a possession and acquisition license, uh, you could buy them. But now there are a lot of things that people are unable to buy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a lot of historical items that 
have been sort of collateral damage of poorly designed federal measures uh, that, mm, well, if one was charitable, one could say they had good intentions, Mm -hmm. uh, but they had a lot of collateral damage. So, for example, someone who wants to collect, uh, you know, do a World War II collection, very common thing. People will often want to collect, say, you know, one rifle from each of the belligerents or one handgun from each of the belligerents. Well, the rifles are... There's a few that they wouldn't be able to get now, but uh, on the handgun side, there's a lot of them that they wouldn't be able to buy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, if they wanted a Luger as representative of things that were used by uh, the Germans, they wouldn't be able to buy one unless it had been modified or was one of the rarer models with a longer barrel. So, yeah, um, it's unfortunate. And a lot of, uh, you know, I, I do have a lot of people come along because I, I display my collection, not just as chief firearms officer, but prior to that I was it was a big part of my life it's one of the I have so much stuff it's all packed away and so often the only time I get to see my stuff not just guns but other stuff is when I pull it out for a show yeah uh, gun show or military a show and so that's they see this stuff and they say wow that's really cool but they can't buy it you know so when you to go to one of these gun shows uh, how many pieces do you bring like are you bringing a dump truck um well, my normal car uh, is is a, quite an old car, but it, it's a station wagon, and it's quite spacious inside. There you go. So, okay. um, so I will typically bring enough stuff to. Uh, previously, I would bring enough stuff to fill uh, four eight foot tables, which is thirty two feet, and I have the I've <laughs> hand built display cases that I put stuff in because I'm I'm. Um, quite a fanatic about safe storage mm-hmm. uh, both for a public safety standpoint and also because I don't want somebody who's just had some greasy salty french fries handling yeah, my, yeah. my stuff um, so um, you know it, it would typically range uh, I mean some of the show some displays that I've done had no firearms at all because they were a display of non-firearms military uh, flags or maps or things like that some of them would have uh, primarily guns, uh, they might have maybe, probably if I were to choose a number, two, uh, two dozen maybe, 20 to 25. Um, the display that I do quite commonly as chief firearms officer is intended to show how complicated our, and in many ways inconsistent, our firearms classification scheme is. And I usually have about two dozen items in that display a few of which show my family's firearms history because they're things that belong to my father, um, and others that show different aspects of, well, this is classified this way, and this is classified that way, and this is why it's classified that way, and then people can draw their own conclusions about how rational that system is. <laughs> is there a piece of the collection, whether it's firearm or uniform or whatever it might be, that is the most valuable to you? Well... Um, it's hard to say because there's a, you know, I have a a lot of different kinds of things, but there's one item that is quite unique uh, that has a lot of family history to it. And it's one of probably the first military item I ever got. Um, And it it is a 50 caliber Browning machine gun cartridge that's been deactivated. And then it's had two locket size holes cut in the side and photographs of my great grandparents mounted in there. Okay. Uh, and I I got this when I was a kid, and I didn't know where it came from. I later discovered it was from my great uncle, who had been an anti-aircraft gunner, and he had made these things and distributed them to various members of the family. He made them himself. Yes. And it's only within the family. Yeah. So a real collector's piece. Yes. So you know that that is uh, particularly important because for a long time those were the only pictures I'd ever seen of my great grandparents with these two little locket-sized photos. <laughs> In a machine gun cartridge. That's an interesting display. Yeah, so. Well, you know, I, I always, um, you know, I have, a, over the years, people have come to know me at gun shows. And so I do have a certain dedicated following of people who are always keen to see what Terry's going to pull out of the closet next. Mm-hmm. Well, no, it's certainly interesting. Um, sounds like you're busy. A very interesting life you lead. Uh if we're going to move into kind of your current role as the right. CFO, can you kind of give us um, a breakdown of what does the provincial CFO do? 
Okay, well, um, so there's two ways of answering that question. So I'll talk about the office first and then about me personally. So the office um, is basically licensing. So we're not law enforcement. We're a regulatory sort of group. We issue licenses. Uh, and our licensing is, broadly speaking, in three areas, individual, business, and ranges. Okay, So almost everything related to businesses and ranges is done through our office here in Alberta. The individual stuff, like that's, for example, um, you know, possession and acquisition licenses, um, the individual stuff is mostly done through a central processing service in Miramichi, New Brunswick. Um, and then a small portion of those cases get referred to us because they require some degree of investigation. And so, for example, um, someone might have had some uh, involvement with the police at some point in their life, and then it's up to our office to decide, is that something that's serious enough to disqualify them from firearms ownership? And so if it's something minor from long, long ago, it probably won't be a problem. If mm -hmm. it's something major or recent, then it probably is a problem. Okay. So, you know, and we have the people that we have to make those kind of decisions. Actually, many of them are, are former police officers themselves. Uh, others are former conservation officers or corrections officers, people who have had to um, discuss, have discussions with people and decide whether the person is a risk. So um, right now, the vast majority of individual transactions are done through Miramichi. But there are a lot of issues, internal administrative issues in that uh, process, and I'm hoping that we will be able to bring that back and do it in Alberta because uh, I would feel much better about being able to ensure public safety and customer service if I had actual control of that as opposed to it being done by people that I've never met, didn't choose, and live far, far mm -hmm. away. Then as far as my job itself, I have a mandate letter from the Minister of Justice and Solicitor General, and uh, it's fairly detailed, but broadly speaking, I have two roles. One of those roles is... Um, to supervise the administration of this licensing office, as I've described to you, um, under the within the framework of the law as it exists right now, and fortunately, I have a a deputy, a very capable deputy, who deals with most of that kind of stuff, and we discuss some policy issues and interesting cases, and and uh, there are a few things because of technicalities in the law that I'm not able to delegate that I that I do personally. So um, that's one aspect of my job, is the system as it is now. The other aspect is, uh, in some ways, the, the most exciting part of that uh, job. Although, believe it or not, sometimes deciding those other issues can be pretty exciting in itself. <laughs> uh, but the, 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 the part that offers kind of the most uh, creative potential is that I'm supposed to advocate for laws that make more sense. And uh, I believe that firearms regulation is an area that has tremendous potential for um, having an effect on public safety, but that effect is not always fully realized because of poorly designed systems and poorly managed or implemented systems. And so... Uh, I'm always looking for ways that we can improve the management of the system as it exists now and then also improve the system because I think that there's a lot of uh, emphasis on the wrong things so that resources are often directed towards purposes that have minimal effect on public safety and therefore there's not enough to put onto the things that do have a direct impact on public safety. So there's... Um it's a good segue, I guess. Uh, there's one part. So this is from a letter that you wrote, and I thought this was actually a really good piece because I think it's what people look for in the politicking side of things where people can have a civil disagreement. So whether it's liberals versus conservatives or just people in general can't get along. But if you disagree with something, give your reasons for why. But 
you go further and you offer some actual solutions, concrete details of, okay, I don't think this is going to work. How about we take this money and do A, B, and C? So if I can read uh, a little part of this letter. So this is a letter you wrote to um, Minister of Public Safety, uh, Public Safety Marco Mendicino, if I'm saying that right. So this was dated uh, April 14th. 2022. Uh, so this here says, uh, the vast resources that will be required to implement these plans, so talking about buybacks, um, confiscation of firearms, uh, would have a much better return elsewhere if your goal is safer communities for everyone. Such alternative measures would include better identification, tracking, and prosecution of firearms traffickers providing effective deterrence to those who misuse firearms, offering alternatives to the destructive gang lifestyle, and addressing the drug addiction that is destroying so many young lives. So continues on, even if the cost of implementing the ban can be constrained to just $2 billion, this sum alone could pay for some 12,000 person years of specialized law enforcement, regulatory and social services personnel. So I thought the very end of that was actually spot on. It's almost what the federal government has been talking about when we have um, the defunding of police, even at local governments. So we're talking about defunding of police. Um, this is saying like, hey, we're willing to take some of that money and put it into social services. Why aren't we looking at these options? But when it comes to firearms, it's almost just a one, a one size fits all approach get rid of the guns and that's it but you offer you know several different paths that we can put this money into and i i would agree this is these are a lot of different ideas that uh, have a lot of merit to them so. well i think one of the important things so you know you mentioned about people have different disagreements on things so i always like to try and work to bring people together and I think the way you look to bring people together is uh, you find something that they can agree on. Uh, it's always easy to find things you can disagree on with other people, but find something that you can agree on. And the firearms issue, I think, has a great deal of potential for that because when you talk even about the firearms issue, it's not one issue. It's a whole bunch of different issues. Um, misuse of firearms could be suicides, it could be uh, domestic violence, it could be gang usage, it could be um, you know, improper storage and accidents. Um, there's many, many different aspects to this. And so what you need to do uh, when you approach a, a complex problem is not try to, uh, you know, use a one-size-fits-all solution but figure out this big issue, what are the sub-problems within that? And then what can we do about each of those sub-problems? And then when you approach the stakeholders on a particular issue, then you can find room to agree mm -hmm. with those people on that sub-issue. And so um, I talk, I have a lot of friends for, who are range from across the political spectrum. And although they know my political leanings and might not agree with them, many of them say that they have confidence in me because they know that I'm trying to uh, find an actual practical, pragmatic solution to a problem, mm -hmm. not simply apply you know, sort of one ideological approach to it. And in the, the case of these uh, firearms issues, um, you know, you mentioned defunding the police, and I... I I don't agree with the idea of defunding the police. I mean, there may be certain things that, uh, it's not that the police are perfect. Uh, I don't think there's any organization, group, or whatever that is perfect in the world, including me and including my office. But, um, you know, there are, uh, there are aspects of uh, policing that I feel desperately need more funding. Um, I've spoken to people who, uh, you know, I consult widely with uh, law enforcement, and I've spoken to people who say, like, you know, 
we should have eight people. We've got four. And actually, at the moment, only two. And, you know, and then our funding is going to run out soon mm-hmm. and so on. So um, there are aspects of policing that need increased funding, but it's not only policing that's going to solve this kind of a problem. Um, you know, we need education to help further reduce accidents. Educate, uh, it's not widely known, but you know, firearms accidents have been reduced enormously over the years through uh, education and requirements for better storage and things mm-hmm. like that. So, um, so you know, you can approach some problems through education. Some of them may need uh, a sort of social work type of approach. Some may need, uh, you know, better enforcement at the border. Some may need um, more people, more police, which doesn't always necessarily have to mean you know, just arresting people. Um, you know, my conversations with uh, your Sergeant Ferry were very interesting, and, and I've heard some of his presentations as well. And, you know, the idea of uh, just trying to get people away from lifestyles that are going to to be bad for not just the community, but for them personally, and making mm-hmm. them understand that, you know, like, if you go down this path, you're going to end up dead. So, you know... It's in your, your own interest to go a different way. So the idea of, of policing as just, um, you know, a bunch of guys with billy clubs going out and banging on heads, uh, that's not the reality today, and it's even less likely to be the reality tomorrow because uh, policing and police officers, for anyone who gets to know them, are a much more sophisticated lot than that. Yeah, I I would totally agree with you. Nobody's perfect. I think everybody's trying to do the best they can. It's just interesting when uh, a lot of stuff that comes up around firearms seems like uh, the current powers that be are just pushing one thing and one thing only, not necessarily willing to listen to suggestions, uh, other solutions, alternatives. So, Well, the interesting thing about that is, you know, I I thought I knew a lot about this issue before I started the job, but I've learned an awful lot more since that time. And one of the things that's quite surprising that most people don't know is that even... There there are certain aspects of what we do right now that I strongly agree with. So, for example, having people properly screened and trained before they get, uh, you know, the ability to legally acquire a firearm, that I'm solidly behind. Um, But what what people often don't realize is that uh, the federal government isn't so much behind that. Um, That's their program, but they seriously underfund it. I've spoken mm-hmm. to chief firearms officers all across the country, and all of them say they don't have enough resources to screen people as much as they would like, to do as much follow-up on cases as they would like. And so it's almost like they've set up a program and then set it up to fail so that then they can justify other measures. Now, that might be attributing a little bit more malevolence uh, you know, than, than is appropriate, but it's it's quite startling that the things that they set up themselves they're not doing properly could they underfund it in maybe they underfund it because they figure well then we just won't get as many uh pals out there and then we just have less firearms rather than we're just going to have people doing a bad job because we underfund it well they probably end up with somewhat of both um, and I'm not saying that, that firearms officers across the country are doing a bad job. They're doing the best job they can, just like police officers do the best job that they can, given the resources they have. Uh, but sometimes a little bit more in terms of resources can make a big improvement. And, you know, you're able to do that, if you're a police officer, that one extra patrol that might catch somebody or deter somebody. Or if you're a firearms officer, you can ask those few extra questions that mm-hmm. might reveal something that uh, might determine the outcome of the case. So uh, there's, a, I think, part of the resources that uh, are currently planned to be, in my mind, wasted on some government programs that are not really going to help very much uh, would be much better spent on um, just implementing the program that they have now. I mean, when chief firearms officers across the country, including my predecessor, uh, well, I can't say that 
I mean, I didn't speak personally to my predecessor, but my understanding is that it was a long-standing uh, issue in the office that it was underfunded, mm-hmm. and um, so, so, uh, and I know that offices across the country have that issue now, and so if we could do a better job of screening people, then um, and follow up and things like that, then and more inspections of businesses and and so on, um, I think that would have a, more of an impact on safety than uh, taking somebody's firearm out and giving them some money that they'll probably use to go out and buy another firearm. Uh, So, you know, you're not really going to accomplish very much with this uh, confiscation and compensation scheme. So do you, where do you see firearms fitting in in society in general? Like what is their purpose? And well, I guess, should people have them recreationally? I would imagine, I know your answer, Mm -hmm. but just so you can kind of put it all together. Yeah, well, um, I think that, that uh, people's exposure to firearms varies very widely, and as a result, they have uh, very different opinions on them. And I think one can draw a very reasonable analogy to automobiles. So uh, there are people who view automobiles as an instrument of uh, freedom that enables them to uh, explore the country and uh, and uh, gives them opportunities to do things they wouldn't otherwise be able to do. Uh, and there are people who view uh, automobiles as well. They are sources of pollution and people shouldn't have them because it's, uh, you know, the, uh, there are traffic accidents and uh, environmental impacts and, and so on and so forth. So people's, how people have been socialized through their experiences with um, things determines how they view those things. And so, for example, here in Alberta, the traditional culture that was largely based on rural extractive industries and agriculture, uh, you know, if you were a rancher, a firearm was a tool, enabled you to uh, defend your cattle against uh, predators. If you were uh, a farmer, maybe you could uh, control the, the pesky uh, gophers that mm-hmm. were causing your livestock to break their legs. Um, it, they were practical implements. Uh, and they were implements that enabled you to live a certain free lifestyle that uh, people often seek out in rural areas. Uh, a lot of people want to live in a rural area because it gives they, that space, gives them the sense of freedom and uh, running their own business, whether it's a ranch or a farm or, or something else, gives them that sense of freedom. So the firearms then have the association with freedom, you know, responsibility, looking after yourself. So they have all those kind of positive connotations. But of course now, you know, a lot of people uh, are, are quite far removed from that culture. Um, they may only have lived in the cities. They may have come to Canada from a country where there was no tradition of civilian firearms ownership and the only guns they saw were in people who oppressed them, in the hands of people who oppressed them. And so they have quite a different set of associations. Uh, the, the item itself is neutral. The item, the item itself doesn't do anything until somebody does something with it. And so, um, you know, what you have seen people do with it determines how you will view that item. And so, uh, you know, in our rural areas today, people still have that association that firearms are tools, they are useful, they are uh, elements of uh, important and indeed essential elements of uh, a free and independent lifestyle and then you also have people who have a very different set of associations with those things well i think even on that too you were talking about how you go to a gun show and it's a social aspect and people can get together and talk about these things right it's a a show where people have guns but Mm -hmm. um just like you might have a car show exactly brings people together Mm -hmm. um it, my, my husband is a car nut, and so 
Um, he just recently bought a 1965 Morris Minor to add to the other two Morris Miners and several other vehicles that he has. <laughs> so, you know, his, he's not a gun person at all, but he immediately saw the, the parallels between mm-hmm. these two worlds. And in fact, there's a fair amount of overlap. So that's kind of coming from the provincial view mm-hmm. of things. So for the federal government, um, can you give us a bit of insight into uh, outside what we might see on main, mainstream media, what did they actually think about firearms? Because I didn't know the stuff you were saying about the licensing office mm-hmm. um, and maybe underfunding those programs and stuff. So they're talking about buybacks. They've put uh, you know over 1,500 guns on that new ban. Um, now they recently extended that buyback, uh, that grace period where they're looking to do that. What is their actual view on this, as far as you might understand it? It's very hard to get inside uh, someone else's head when a lot of the things that they do simply don't make sense. Uh, And so um, I think that... uh, to a certain extent, um, they started down a path that uh, sounded good to start with, and the further they've gone down that path, the the less good it looks. But they're kind of stuck on that path. So, like throwing good money after bad. Yeah, well, for an analogy, yeah, exactly. So, so you know, um, they may have. They may have thought, and there are there are people who and, and who legitimately believe that certain firearms are intrinsically evil. Okay, they don't realize that one firearm is a fairly good substitute for another for most purposes. Um, I mean, well, not for most purposes, but for for most malevolent purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if you want to do something wrong, if you can't get one kind of gun, another one will probably do quite well. It's not necessarily the case if you're out hunting a particular type of game or something like that. Then you mm-hmm. need something more specialized, which is why people have often numerous firearms. But I think they they probably legitimately thought this was something they needed to do, and then uh, they don't get good advice um, because, and what good advice they do get, they don't listen to, because there's I think there's been. There's been an unfortunate level of polarization on this issue, where if you say anything that opposes a particular uh, federal government measure, then uh, you want to have the Wild West. Nobody wants to have the Wild West. Okay, Firearms owners are the most concerned people you will ever meet about public safety, because they could be a victim of lack of public safety, just the same as anybody else. But also, when there's a perceived lack of public safety, that's what motivates measures that unfairly target them, uh, measures of which they are the collateral damage. And well, so, even if you think lots of police officers are firearms owners, I'm a firearm owner, but I'm out there also going after the people that have firearms illegally. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, well, I think the... the in my mind, the most important thing is we have to recognize that there are not good guns and bad guns. There are, um, well, I'll say I'll say it this way and then and then um, qualified. I mean, there's good people and bad people, and bad people won't necessarily always be bad people, but mm-hmm. they're the wrong people to have guns right at the moment. Yes. Okay. I mean, there are people who turn their lives around and, you know, someone might have been a gang member when they were young and 20 years later they've become an upstanding citizen, they moved to the country and they want to go hunt deer. Well, maybe maybe that's time to reconsider that. But, um, you know, there are definitely people that we don't want to have firearms in society, at least uh, at present, you know, given their, their current record. Um, and we need to try and keep those firearms away from those people. And it doesn't matter whether that firearm is, uh, you know, a modern firearm or an old single-shot firearm. They shouldn't have a firearm at all. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the way to deal with these issues is to make sure that the people who should not have firearms, um, in whose, who would be a bad person to have a firearm, um, that they don't get them 
of, of any kind, at least not legally. And then, you know, the, the legal aspect is all that I can, uh, you know, directly deal with. Uh, our office does collaborate to some extent with um, firearms trafficking efforts through provision of information and, and things like that. Uh, but that's primarily a, a police role or a border services role. Well, and I think you offer a lot of good ideas on, you know, we deal with both sides of the issue. So we deal with the item itself. And then more importantly, we deal with the person. I think dealing with the person, obviously, a lot harder of a discussion because um, a firearm itself doesn't have rights, but a person does. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot more discussion to be had about how you're going to deal with that person, what type of, you know, whether it's charges, mandatory minimum punishments, um, and then just further through Firearms Act or criminal code, depending on what type of offense you're looking at. I think you really need to look, you know, uh, in detail. It's people make, like to make broad sweeping statements, um, but, you know, there are, you know, they will immediately draw a comparison, you know, Canada and U.S. and make all mm-hmm. kinds of, of um I think often unfounded generalizations about that, um, but you know you can look at some of the countries that have uh, very high um, homicide rates, far higher than the United States, and some of them they don't have any legal firearms ownership at all, mm-hmm. um, and so. Um, one of the things that being an academic for 25 years taught me is how to look at studies and see what they actually say, which is often quite different from what they're portrayed as saying. Yes. And so, uh, and I also know that through the judicious choice of, uh, of your samples and, in other words, the, the particular objects that you're going to study, particular you know, locations or... Uh, or individuals that you're going to study, and then the methodologies that you apply, you can predetermine the result that you want. Uh, and unfortunately, that's the the pattern in a, a lot of the I'll use scare quotes of the <laughs> research that uh, one often sees, especially cited in the media, because the media are not particularly good at that. In fact, they often are among the worst offenders. Mm-hmm. Um, the you know, they'll say, um, for example, there was a recent poll that that was about whether people wanted tougher gun laws, but they didn't say what tougher gun laws means. Does mm-hmm. that mean longer sentences for offenders, or does it mean more paperwork for a hunter? You know, um, and it leaves that completely open. <laughs> and that's part of the par- purpose of this podcast, is to have that more in-depth discussion and have people take, you know, um, kind of sit back and think more about what they're reading what they're actually looking at it's um i think the world's kind of moved especially with the social media side of things they've moved more into just reading the headline maybe the first two sentences if that's not going to catch them uh, or draw them in then they're on to the next thing this is a much broader discussion it affects hundreds of thousands of people and i don't think an honest discussion has been had at least not in the morning news or social media, or if anybody actually watches whatever the uh, government's saying, you know, in the house. So I thought um, having you here was, that's why having you here is uh, beneficial for this conversation. So one question I did want to have, and won't keep you too much longer, um, the federal buyback program is, can you explain at all any details of how like I know they they've paused it but how would that actually work and is there any idea of what would happen with people who don't want to give their guns back well um, so I can't say very much because uh, there is no plan that has been announced at least Uh, there is no plan that has been publicly announced there has been no plan that has been shared with our offices we, in general, do not get uh, any advance notice of things. Uh, you know, the recent May 18th uh, measures, you know, we found out about by accident a few days ahead of time and got, like, um, mere single-digit days 
of, of I, yeah, I think it was on the like well, at least for my purposes, I mm -hmm. saw on May 11th, mm -hmm. people started talking about this. Yeah, um, small businesses were really affected. Mm -hmm. Now all of a sudden they have to come up with a whole record keeping system in a week, yeah. um, and a new process for verifying uh, a license. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, where are we getting the money for this? Who's accountable for what? And as of May 18th, if I don't, you know, do steps A, B, and C. Am I liable? Is my okay. business liable? So yeah, now, that's there, definitely scary. Now there was a so there was a lack of uh, there's a, generally a lack of consultation, but uh, on on those kinds of issues, and we have got a lot of inquiries from people who are you know uh, the the simple cases that was you know you didn't need a lot of notice, you didn't need a lot of figuring out but the, the world isn't always simple there's a lot of complicated cases what happens if this what happens if that those could have those questions could have all been avoided if they'd had more uh, prior announcement uh, and more um, uh, more given people more opportunity to have input to explain how some of these things might affect them and then even if they decided to pursue it to be able to um, to be able to uh, adjust the measures or at least come up with explanations. On the buyback, uh, there is no system uh, that has been announced as far as we've been able to determine. Um, if people were to uh, retain their property in, uh, in spite of a federal law requiring that it be surrendered or deactivated, um, they would be in technically in violation of the law and would be potentially exposing themselves to um, the consequences of, uh, of violating the Firearms Act mm -hmm. uh, or the criminal code or some combination thereof. And so um, it's, it is a very serious matter because it's something that strikes very uh, deeply at a lot of people who are torn between their instinct to always obey the law, even when it doesn't make sense, mm -hmm. and uh, the consequences of uh, both monetary and, in some cases, sentimental and, and other consequences of uh, having their property taken away. So the legally acquired, yes, property, property that yes. property that they legally acquired that they, in many cases, were specifically authorized to acquire. Um, so uh, it's, it will be a very wrenching time for people. And my hope is that um, the complications of this will eventually either cause the decision to be reconsidered or, um, if not reconsidered by the current um, administration, then perhaps by a future administration of a different complexion. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, but right now, if I if I had a crystal ball and I could tell you exactly what was going to happen and how it was going to work, uh, I'd love to do it and share it with all of your listeners. But uh, they didn't issue me one. They didn't <laughs> issue me, you know, I'm still looking. Maybe that was one of the things the feds took with us. They didn't leave me the magic wand to solve yeah. some of these problems, <laughs> and they didn't leave me with a crystal ball to figure out uh, what the federal government might have in store for us. So right now we're kind of in a wait-and-see approach. Uh, do you know why they picked 2023 as the extension date? Uh, I do not know. I know that it's, I mean, they, they needed to have things a little ways off. Um, personally, I don't think that they will have a plan, a uh, concrete, well, they might they might have the rudiments of a plan by that point, um, but they certainly would not have time to implement anything by that time. I don't, I don't think there's any realistic prospect that they could both come up with a plan and implement it by that time. So I think the most likely consequence of, uh, most likely outcome is that they will end up having to extend the amnesty again. And, really? Yeah. You know, okay. uh, that, that, if I were, if I were a betting person, uh, hopefully that's not illegal to say, uh, <laughs> then, then, then uh, uh, I would probably bet that way. Um, but the um, uh, with it, with with uh, additional time, hopefully it will be reconsidered. Um, 
I can't see that they would be able to uh, to do it, so they will have to, I, I don't see any alternative but for them to extend it. And there is, if you look back at the history, one of the, one of the few benefits of being old, like me, uh, is that uh, you have seen how some similar ideas have worked out, and um, there have been regulations that have been repeatedly delayed, in some cases, for many years. Mm-hmm. And so this might end up being one of those things uh, that eventually, um, you know, it will end up, it'll end up being delayed and delayed and delayed. And then either someone will finally see the light and uh, cancel it and decide, you know, there's a much better way of spending all the money that they, we were going to spend on that. Or, um, I mean, if they delay it long enough, um, eventually everybody dies and it goes, yeah. <laughs> to, uh, you know, and the, and the problem solves itself over a matter of decades, just through through um, natural mortality. Um, I wish I had I wish I had a better solution, a better answer for you. No, I, I mean, tell us what you can. I appreciate that. Um, maybe the last thing I'll kind of ask and. Uh, I don't know if you saw the recent news. There's a mass shooting in the U.S. yesterday. Mm -hmm. And they seem to be having a few of them lately. And depending how you classify mass shooting, that also differs on the source you look at. But um, do you have any kind of argument for when people use that as an excuse? Or maybe I won't say excuse, but a reason for why there should just be no guns? Well, the first thing that one should always uh, say uh, in cases like this is to extend condolences to all of the parties involved because, uh, you know, any, any tragedy that takes many lives, including in this case uh, a large number of very young lives, mm-hmm. uh, is something that we all have to deplore and um, extend every way of uh, supporting the individuals who were affected. Um, it also, of course, has a very traumatic effect, I think, on on people even beyond those families that uh, lost loved ones. So, um, because it, it raises the fear level, people wonder, you know, how do I keep my children safe? Um, so, uh, my answer to people is that we need to ensure that people who are um, either mentally ill or have um, extremist views that they somehow feel are are going to be furthered by taking um, hateful, uh, cowardly actions like this, uh, we need to ensure that those people do not have legal access to any kind of firearms. Mm-hmm. And so that's what our focus is in our office, is ensuring that uh, people who have access to any kind of a firearm are vetted as carefully as we can to ensure that they don't um, slip through the cracks. Uh, and uh, I have I always want to ensure that everyone... Uh, understands that uh, my team and I are working as hard as we can to ensure that no families will ever face these kind of tragic losses. And I mean, and it kind of speaks to your point there about comparing Canada to the U.S. We have differences in our gun laws. We have different culture around it. So, yeah, I, I would agree with what you're saying. Um, is there anything else you think you'd like to add, or do we miss any other parts to this conversation? Uh, well, I'm I'm sure that uh, you know uh, you're an interest, inter, interesting conversationalist, and we could continue on here for many days. But hopefully, what we can do perhaps is uh, at some point uh, when you uh, have run through another. A uh, bunch of uh, interesting guests, and you're scraping the bottom of the barrel. You can come <laughs> around and, and talk to me again, and uh, I'd very much enjoy a future conversation with you and your listeners. Oh, great! Thanks. Um, is there any way that uh, anything you want to 
plug for like a show or any way that people can connect with you or get in touch? Well, the best, the best way to reach us is that we have a very easy to remember email, and that is albertacfo at gov.ab.ca, the usual government of Alberta extension. So albertacfo at gov.ab.ca. And only send letters saying, thanks for doing a great job. <laughs> uh, well, we, we um, believe it or not, we actually do get some like that. But mm-hmm. um, whatever kinds of, um, we appreciate all the feedback that we get because that's what's going to enable us to do a better job in future. Um, sometimes things, sometimes people point out issues that we weren't aware of, complications, um, and uh, as I mentioned before, I don't consider, as good as my team is and as hard as we work, um, neither I nor they are perfect, and so um, all feedback is welcome. Great. Uh, appreciate your time. Thank you for coming by today, and we'll definitely look to have you on again. Okay. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here.